Hello, my name is Nigel Prentice, and I am a design director at IBM. And I would like to welcome you to the It's About Time podcast, coming from the racial equity and design work at IBM. Today, I'd like to start with a few inspirational words. And what always comes to mind to me is the creativity, energy, and inspiration that I always receive from well-written poetry and inspirational characters. We heard just a few weeks ago, Amanda Gorman, the young woman who recited at the 2021 inauguration for the Joe Biden and Kamala Harris administration. And the world was was amazed. And while, while she was, in fact, fantastic, a personal inspiration of mine has always been Maya Angelou. And so as I thought about today's recording, I thought about some of her words, a couple of ideas here. You may not control all the events that happen to you, but you can decide not to be reduced by them. Another one, I've learned that whenever I decide something with an open heart, I usually make the right decision. And finally, without courage, we cannot practice any other virtue with consistency. We cannot be kind, true, merciful, generous, or honest. And it's those words that lead me into introducing my guest today. This is a person who embodies many of those words, if not all of them, the kindness that she has, the truth that she's not afraid to speak to authority, her generosity. And for for all of us who benefit from her leadership, her guidance and her counsel, her honesty always shines through. I'd like everyone to join me in welcoming Joelle Williams. Joelle, how are you? I'm pretty good, Nigel. How are you? I'm doing quite well. Always a pleasure to connect with you and and chat and talk. And I'd love for you to introduce what your role is here at IBM. Absolutely. My my role, much like my background, is a hybridity of functions. I came into IBM as an offering manager. And I currently sit on a design team leading adoption and impact for one of our internal tools and platforms. So I call it a hybridity because I'm on the design team. I'm technically not a designer. We could talk about that later. However, I'm doing work that drives business outcomes as well. So it's the intersection of design and business. That's that's right. And I want to decode uh, a few terms for for those who might not be familiar with internal IBM jargon. When we say offering manager, we, we absolutely mean the product management function. And that's how I came to know you here in IBM Studios, Austin. We've worked on teams together. We've helped uh, roll out programs together that primarily helped bring early career designers into the into the profession, into the company. And you were and have been our trusted product management, offering management expert. And you help guide these these early career folks and, and even guide us, all of us across all the teams on how we can adopt and be better collaborators. And, and that is a theme that I think transcends even what you just said, the hybridity, uh, the, the hybrid aspect of design and product. And, you know, I would say, honestly, Joelle, and maybe I, I should ask it in this way, you know, how have you enjoyed working so closely with design? Because I've got a way of saying that you are a designer and I'll share that my thoughts in a minute. <laughs> but in the last several years, how have you found that? How's it been working with designers so closely? 
I enjoy working with designers. I do I do consider myself to be a designer, a designer of programs, designer of processes. As a matter of fact, I have an MBA in strategic design, which is the intersection of design and business. So therefore, I, I do oftentimes find myself operating in this looking at it with multiple lenses and understanding multiple sides of the coin there. So it's great to be able to have those diverse viewpoints and then also to have people who have a strategic view, right? In terms of looking at actions and just that holistic experience for anyone going through a life cycle of a product or a program. And I'm glad you said that because that, that's where I was going as well. You you have mm-hmm. absolutely designed quite a few things. And whether they're artifacts or programs or services or experiences for, for colleagues, you, you certainly fill the the boots and fill the role of service designer, if not more. So, so absolutely important to point out that we all are actually designers when we are doing what my friend Adam Cutler always says, you know, rendering intent. And, and so what I would love to do is get a little bit of your background and just quickly understand, you know, sort of where, where you're from, where you grew up, and, and get, let's just start there. I grew up in New York State, and I realize that that's a broad statement <laughs> considering the size of New York, but I say it that way because I literally live throughout different sections of New York State. So born in Westchester County, moved up to the capital, Albany area, and then kind of settled within the central part of the Hudson Valley area of Newburgh, New York, which is not too far from one of our main campuses in Poughkeepsie. So that's that's where I grew up. And my what made me do all those moves, my father was a minister. And so those moves were all correlated with different churches that he was pastoring and leading at the time. And in terms of your father's work, I know that many times our parents' roles in the world play uh, a, a big role, obviously, in, in children and therefore us. And so I'm curious a little bit about your parents and, and was hoping you talk a little bit about each of them and their impact on you. My parents had a huge impact in terms of, I would say, how I live my life today. So with my father being a preacher, my mother being a teacher, but what's most important from that is that our lives were very firmly planted in civil rights, social activism, in all aspects of our lives. And that really stems from my parents' interest. My father worked closely with the SCLC, Southern Christian Leadership Conference, which is a still functioning organization that has a heavy hand on what happens in civil rights. So he worked closely with Wyatt T. Walker. He led marches within our city in Newburgh, New York, and other actions that were happening throughout New York State. So he was a a known leader. It was a conversation that we would have around dinner tables, lunch times, or marches that we would go with him to and participate. My mother, we have a family photo from the early 60s of my mother being arrested and thrown into a paddy wagon for protesting in downtown Brooklyn. So activism was an everyday occurrence. Talking about race relations 
conversations like that, that was our, if you will, sport around the dinner table. So we were very much so active, not only in the church from a civil rights activist point of view, but also in the music that we were listening to and hearing and infused throughout our lives. So I would say that is the the bedrock, the foundation of my childhood into adulthood. Wow. So so you have memories of growing up marching. Is that right? Yes, definitely. That's amazing. That's amazing. Do you there there is a, a, a famous photo of, of your family in the middle of one of those marches. Do you do you I'm curious, do you know the story around that and who was in that photo? I believe the one you're referring to is from Tawana Brawley. And so my father was doing a lot of work with our, our church, his church in Newburgh, New York was a headquarters, if you will, for rounding up many people and what was happening at that point in time. And so there were a few marches and one of them was led by Reverend Al Sharpton along with my father in Wappinger Wappinger Falls. I believe that's the photo that you're referring to. That's right. That is the one I'm referring to. And and how did that relationship come to be between the two of them, Reverend Al Sharpton and your dad? It's a funny story. So Reverend Sharpton is a minister. He started very young. And one of his first sermons, I would say his first sermon, was at my father's church in Terrytown, New York. And I believe Reverend Sharpton was somewhere between 9, 12 years old within that range, and meaning that he was a child and that he was short. And so in order for the congregation to be able to see him over the the pulpit there, he had to stand on a box. So that was the beginning of that relationship between Reverend Sharpton and my father. That's amazing. That is, that's, I don't think I've ever, you know, you don't get to hear stories like that a lot of times <laughs> where folks who are, you know, you know, in the forefront of these movements to this day, kind of their origin story, unless they're telling it. And you were sometimes, you know, a, a fly on the wall and they got to see some of that Re- Reverend Sharpton. On, on a box at a young age preaching along with your father and your father kind of gave him a little bit of a break into into the pulpit. That's really interesting. You know, I think looking at some of the things about your, your mother as well, do any stories come to mind? You just teased us a second ago with this interesting th- being thrown in a paddy wagon. I, I can't imagine very many people have a more interesting story about a civil rights mother being arrested. That's got to be an impactful on you. I'll tell you what, that picture was taken in 1963. There was a construction site in downtown Brooklyn, and there were no Black people a part of the project at all. And so that's what led my mother downtown Brooklyn to start protesting. And she was, as I said, arrested, and she was very stylishly arrested. That picture pops up at any point in time. But what's what's even crazier is that my mother just turned 80 uh, three weeks ago, and she showed us pictures of her on the side of the street and protesting what was happening with, around the inauguration and protests. So 1963, she's out there protesting. 2021, she's on the streets protesting with signs as well. So when I say it was like a rampant part of my life and in my DNA, 
It started from birth till today is, is where it goes. Even, and it wasn't just for protests. It was about for everyone that was within our community. And so when I reflect upon the impact that my father and family had on the community, we, I never went to school on Martin Luther King's birthday, even though it was not a recognized holiday in the state or nationally. My father created a weekend long event of celebrating Martin Luther King and got permission to take students out of school, black students out of school, We didn't go home. We were still in classes with all day services, recognizing and lessons around not just black history, but specifically the work of Martin Luther King and those that supported him as well. And so and that was something that was for the entire community. And that's the way in which social justice work and activism should be. It's not just what was happening within my family, but was the impact and making sure that it was known in areas that may not have had the opportunity that would have been in school, right? Not recognizing the day, but we were, he was able to make that happen. My father was. That's a really incredible uh, story and, and, and lucky to have a dad like that, who was such a role model and, and took such action, took an orientation of action towards what was important. We know that the United States did not celebrate MLK day until very recently, really, in the in the grand scheme of things. And to be in the 60s and 70s and early 80s fighting for that and recognizing it and doing something about it is really special. I'll be honest, in my bringing, you know, I was in the South at the time I was already in Texas, having had moved around, but, but was in Texas by this time. And my first memory of MLK Day was totally different. It was it was a lot more awkward. And my family and I went out, you know, to celebrate, I guess, as a family, and we got all kinds of stares and why are these truant kids not in school and all sorts of dirty looks from from those of us, those around us in Houston. So it, it could have been just that it was a new holiday and people weren't used to it, but it but also it almost add, created more questions for me than answers. All right. So moving forward a little bit, let's kind of get into Joelle growing up and coming of age. Where did you end up going to college? And let's let's talk about that a little bit. Where'd you go to school? Sure. I went to Fisk University, HBCU College, and one of the rules within my family is that all of us, I have an older sister and a younger brother and a cousin that was raised with us, we all had to attend an HBCU. So that gave us, what, about 117 colleges to choose from, but it was, you know, choose a college, but it's an HBCU. So my sister and I both are alum of Fisk University. That's fantastic. And Fisk, you know, one of the most historic schools started right at the end of the Civil War. What was that experience like for you? It was an interesting experience. So why did my parents set that up for us? We grew up in New York State, so we grew up in the North. And so therefore, there were many instances where we were not the majority meeting Black folks, were not the majority. And my parents really want us to have an experience of us not being considered the minority, but being the majority. Black teachers, administration, your students, your classmates, all of that. And so that was, you know, it was a welcoming experience. I pledged there. Alpha Kappa Alpha Sorority Incorporated. Thank you very much. Both my mother and sister are members of AKA as well. And so just 
lots of fond memories and friends that I keep in touch with to this day. My line sisters and I have a monthly call (laughs) and accountability partners that we check up on on a regular. So, you know, lifelong friendships. That's really, really deep. And the history of Fisk is is quite amazing with W.B. Du Bois being in the first class, Booker T. Washington being an educator, Ida B. Wells. And you share the sorority and sistership with our vice president, Ms. Kamala Harris, also a, a soror of ours. And my father and I both being members of Alpha Phi Alpha and several uncles as as well. The uh, the Greek tradition lives on, and I'm proud proud to say that, my Ski Phi sister. So, Ski Phi. There you go. There you go. Um, all right. So, so Fisk University, and what did you study at Fisk? I was an economics major. You know, if there if there was a, a fail there in that experience, it would be choosing economics as my major. It just wasn't, I, I didn't love it, right? And so therefore, I, I just didn't love it. I also was a, a French minor as well. But economics, there you have it. Regardless of what my major was, I still knew the direction that I wanted to go in. So that was helpful from a business standpoint, which was key. Was it a place for coming of age with you? It feels like you had so many opportunities to have already done that, you know, with the parents that you had, with the, you know, SCLC, with the, I'm sure as a preacher, your your father likely had other preachers come over and being the first family, you know, there's a lot of opportunity for you to really experience the world around you with eyes wide open at an early age. So that all was was maybe an influence on you. Did you also have a coming of age at Fisk? I like that question. Did I have a coming of age at Fisk? I did have a coming of age at Fisk. And I would say the backstory, the backdrop that you just laid out is very accurate in terms of all the interactions that I had leading up to Fisk, right? And then I guess my coming of age at Fisk was really, you know, I said I went to school, I lived up north, I went to school where it was integrated and we were not the majority, meaning Black people. And so there were many classes where I was the only Black person or or that type of a thing, right? And I would say that the coming of age experience was, man, I'm not the, I'm not the smartest black kid here anymore. Seriously, like all of you, all of you are just as smart or smarter than. Usually, it was smarter than, to be honest. But it was like, oh my goodness. So you know, that was a that was a humbling experience, quite honestly, for me. And then the same thing in terms of. HBCUs just don't have, especially Fisk at that time period, didn't have huge funding. So there were things that you lacked, right? But then quite honestly, when you think about it, does it truly impact your, your learning or is it just something that's nice to have? And I would say it's something that's nice to have because the learning was that you don't need all of the bells and whistles that you have at much larger institutions, but it's the community that's built and long-lasting friendships, not just with your classmates, but with your professors as well. I can think of one very fondly, Dr. Papusik, my calculus professor. 
She'd holler across the yard, Williams, Williams, <laughs> your sister did this. Why aren't you doing that? <laughs> Even to a calculus professor to uh, intimidate right? you across campus, <laughs> you cannot escape. <laughs> Uh, did you have any preconceived notions or even stereotypes about the South before you went, you know, with Fisk being in Nashville, Tennessee, you coming from New York? Did did that open your eyes at all? Was it exactly what you expected? I'd had experiences with the South prior to going, prior to getting there, A, because my sister did attend Fisk, so that was in the South, but also my father's family was from the South. So both of my parents were born and raised in Brooklyn, we did visit the South. I th- I always talk fast and I've slowed down quite a bit now. I had silly, you know, thoughts about folks from the South. I had something, preconceived thoughts about people who said y'all all the time. Now I'm living in Texas and I catch myself saying it. And I was like, okay, I, I guess I'm there now, right? I had preconceived thoughts about people who were just talking really slow. Just silly things, silly things. I like <laughs> it. I like it a lot. All right. And so you have done something that a lot of folks have not done. And I respect this part of your story quite a bit. It's this idea of engaging in, in a career trajectory that might be considered non-traditional. And you've you've been able to build multiple successful careers. And so I hope you I'd love to ask you a little bit about that and talk about your some of your early accomplishments and, and what'd you do right after Fisk? So I went into Fisk knowing that I wanted to be a buyer. And I went through a few training programs, one specifically with Bloomingdale's and went into their executive training program. And I followed that career path for quite a while, a couple of decades, from being a buyer, going to retailing, meaning store operations and within stores. And I loved it, quite honestly. I would say I loved it up until the point where it's like, okay, I need, I need another change. What's going on here? And so I, I left that career tangentially bridging into an area that I could bring my past work and experiences to. And so I was an adjunct professor at Fashion Institute of Technology and LIM College, both in New York City. And I started teaching what I had been doing for those past two decades. And I loved that experience for a lot of different reasons. One is because my career had been primarily within department stores and now teaching retailing, I had to put my head up and understand the entire breadth of retailing. So it was almost like a learning experience for me as well, especially when you consider the fact that I didn't major, say, in fashion merchandising. I was an economics major. So that was a wonderful learning experience for me. And to also be able to just teach it with passion and understanding and share those real life experiences versus what was in the textbook as well. But I also knew that that was kind of a short lived time for me because I really do vibe off of fast paced work. And so I needed something different. And I also knew that needing something different meant I needed to skill up. So deciding to skill up for me looked like going to grad school. 
Philadelphia University. So I commuted from New York City to Philadelphia every other weekend for two years where I got an MBA in strategic design, which allowed me to take in other opportunities. And the opportunity that came my way was IBM. Here's something you might not know is that I first applied to IBM to be a designer. <laughs> Many people don't know this, but I did. And I got a very kind email that said something like, what wonderful experiences you have, blah, 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 blah. And they're like, but designer? No, we don't think so. Thanks so much. <laughs> so a great mentor and friend at the time said, you know what? I heard about this associate offering management program, our early career product management program. I heard they're doing that. Try that. And so I threw my hat in the ring for that program. And, and that's how I entered this early career professional product management program that we have. Right. Right. Okay. Yeah, you're <laughs> right. I didn't know that. about. That's awesome. Well, listen, uh, a lot of, as I, as I say quite often when I speak with folks, you know, we all sort of come through this place, whether it's career as a design or IBM or, or even other places, you know, we, we come tangentially, we come from parallel paths and that is, that is all right. You know what I mean? And, and so getting that MBA is, is really, is really special because what we're starting to see is you weave together all of these elements in, in your life, you know, the undergraduate studies, graduate school studies, experience in sort of the what I would imagine is a cutthroat, high stakes, you know, New York fashion industry, retail merchandising, you know, helping to run and manage Bloomingdale's there in New York City and, and now and now to Big Blue. So that that's quite that's quite impressive. And it speaks to the breadth that you bring to your work. There's always whenever I'm working with you and I hear you speak on topics, you know, it's clear that you've got a, a perspective that's that's broad, a sort of born of experiences. And and then you, you back it up with some, you know, some some fact or some some knowledge that's that's learned from a book as well. So I definitely now see where all of that comes from with you. And, you know, we got even to, we got to know each other even more as 2020 unfolded and it became clear that there's some work to do with regards to social justice and racial equity right here at our company and beyond. And so I want to take you back to sort of spring of 2020 last year as the George Floyd murder happened and unfolded in front of all of our eyes on television and beyond. What was it at that time? I, I remember there were some calls for some meetings and for some heartfelt sort of story sharing. And some of us, you know, were able to do that and connect with one another. And, and you were right there as well. What was it about that time that motivated you to bring your, your time and talent into the racial equity and design conversation? I would say it started with knowing I wanted to do something, right? I needed to give something back and not really knowing what that could or should look like. And I would say that it probably started from a place of being numb, if you will, just taking everything in, hearing the stories, hearing what we were doing as an organization, meaning IBM. I was also working with another business resource group 
called Texas Rouge that was working on some learning um, experiences to share with the broader IBM community. And I, I decided that I wanted to be a part of something that could be long lasting and that I can contribute my voice and work to. Sometimes when I speak to people, I call this my, my after school project, if you will. But I, I think it's really important to, especially for what's happening in this time in our lives, for us to, to do something. And oftentimes when we think about doing something, I shared with you that protesting was very much so a part of my life growing up from a child up through adulthood. But I, I, I wasn't in the mood for protesting today, this time period. I didn't want to be out in the streets this time. Quite honestly, I didn't feel I needed to be in the streets. I had conversations with many friends and family members where it was like, you know what? It's time for our allies to step in and step up and speak out for the inequities that are happening. There's no time for people to be silent. And I personally felt that it was all right for me not to be out in the streets and I could do more work and have an impact working with a group of people with shared desired and outcomes and impact IBM internally, as well as work that we're doing that will face the external communities as well. And and why do you think this is needed still? Why What happened here from the 50s and 60s with our parents? My, my father also marched and, and my mother was Angela Davis's roommate, right? So our parents have had that moment in their youth. And then they shared with us some of those lessons when we were young and they were adults. And here we are as adults and the venues may have changed. Some of the language may have changed, but we're still at it. We're still fighting. There's still the malaise, the worry, the concern, the you know, what feels sometimes like a never-ending effort for understanding, to drive towards understanding. Why, why do we still need it? Why hasn't it already gotten better? Well, let me say this first. There has been change and there has been improvement, is my point of view. But obviously, there's much more to be done. And whereas there are times we do feel, and perhaps we really still are talking about a lot of the same issues that were confronted in the 50s and 60s, it looks and feels different. There is a demographic of folks, millennials specifically, who demand more. If it wasn't for the fact that we were going through a pandemic and everybody was on house arrest, mandated to stay home, telephones going, every screen in the house going nonstop. I said to a colleague, IBM colleague, I said, thank you for COVID-19. Thank you for COVID-19. And it's a thank you because if we were all home watching the news to wait for something to happen, to change in regards to the pandemic, then the world would not have seen the death of George Floyd. But because of the pandemic and we were all under house arrest, 
No one was running to soccer practice, basketball, dance classes, art classes, distracted by a board meeting or anything. We all had one mission. How do we get out the house? I'm going to wait and see and watch it on the screen. But what they saw was a horrifying show, a show that we, Black folks, had known and experienced for lifetimes. Strange fruit, right? Lynchings, Billie Holiday, where people said it wasn't true. That doesn't happen any longer. The truth was it does, and it happened in the streets of Minneapolis. And it got recorded. And it kept on showing up in their streams. That's how, why I think today is different. That's why we all have to do our part. And when I say we, that's when I'm talking about allies. Allies can't stand by and say, well, we didn't know. You know now. You're put on call. Do something. Speak up. Do not accept it. It's time to acknowledge and address your implicit bias, the microaggressions. It's time to unlearn what you may have been taught inadvertently by your parents. That's fine. Recognize it, accept it, and then relearn. And that's work they need to do along with the work that we're doing as well. That's what's changed in my eyes. Right. Right. Time for, it's about time for allies to take those actions. Have you seen in in the course of your career, and you look at it from multiple angles, geographically, New York, Texas, discipline-wise, fashion design, you know, and now enterprise design, offering design within IBM. You know, I wonder about the lens that you have brought to this and looked out and observed co-workers, observed bosses, managers, executives, stakeholders. Have, ha, has, has it always been the way it is now at work or have, have you seen any improvements or is it just more of the same? We, we, we know the streets and what's happening outside in the world. I don't think it's changed a whole lot. wonder about the workplace. What are your thoughts there? That's such a sawtooth, and it varies by organization and my past life, store to store, what's important, what could stand out, what gets called out. You know, the business aspect, you know, you pay attention to what you're measuring, right? So if you're not measuring it, if you're not talking about it, if there isn't a place or a person to, to call it out to, then it's not going to be worked upon. So I often considered myself to be an internal instigator, if you will, calling things out and not not in the loud. I'm putting on a protest or anything like that, but I build relationships with people. And when the time is right, I'll say something in terms of, do you happen to notice that all of your executives look like Susie Q, is that strange to you? Or whatever the case may be, whatever the opportunity that presented itself in that moment. And you could see how some places respond and others don't. But there's definitely, when you're, when you're thinking about the fashion industry in general, yeah, definitely. A, lots of abuse and oversights and neglect and just lack of recognition there. Absolutely. 
And I wonder about that, and especially interested in this idea of the internal instigator. Do do you think that you would have been viewed as an internal instigator if you weren't a woman or if you weren't a black woman? Meaning, is what's what about being who you are has made that role more difficult at times? Sometimes I sometimes I wonder if I say too much at the peril of my own career development. And then there are times when, which is most of the times when I'm just like, I just have to be true to myself because if I'm muting myself so that I can advance, then I'd rather not advance. And let's be clear, I am ambitious. So that's really not where I'm coming from. But what I am saying is that I have to be true to myself. I have to be authentic. Yes. Right. And in order to be authentic, I have to, I have to speak up. I don't have, and I can do it behind the scenes. I could say something. I can mentor people. I can talk through instances and speak on behalf of people if necessary. I've done all of that. And I'm comfortable in lending my voice. I do recognize and appreciate appreciate the fact that because of the way that I was raised, the foundation that my parents gave me, I'm very comfortable in lending my voice and speaking up. And I wonder what techniques have you used to do that? You mentioned a few of them. Lending your voice is is something you do, you know, that you've done on behalf of the community, on, on behalf of coworkers. But, but what techniques do you do to walk that line you just talked about to not put your career in too much peril, but still be authentic to the passion and to the needs that you must address? What techniques have you used to, to walk that line? I'd say this: the techniques I use are more strategic in crafting the story or the narrative that I want to be told or I believe needs to be heard. And so I use mentors and friends and family members. I I, I am very passionate about things. And I know sometimes people think that I, I edit or something flows out so nicely. It's usually because I've had to think it through, because if I say the first thing that comes top of mind, it, it might come across as too aggressive or attacking, or it's not well received. And so what I've had to learn is how do you craft the message? What's the desired outcome? How do you craft the message? How do you deliver it in a way that it can be heard and received? I would say that's definitely a life lesson that I've had to learn along the way. I can nail it now more so than I could before. But even now, sometimes I, I mess it up. Say la vie. <laughs> mm, I hear you. And I wonder what lessons others around you could take on just as you are introspective on this point and have created a life lesson out of it. I mean, that's a very optimistic and positive take on this interesting point. But that it, to me, it begs the question, well, what about everybody else around you? You know, why, you know, communication isn't a one-sided activity and if communication's messed up the sender isn't the only one at fault typically typically there's a context 
that everyone is operating in. And that's the systemic part around communication that we often have to solve at work. And that's across the board. But when it comes to ethnicity and gender and confrontation, I think we still have some work to do so that our that it, women and especially black women are not marginalized just because they have something important and uncomfortable to say. Would you agree? I would agree. And that goes with the curation of the conversation that you want to have, because not only am I thinking about the message I want to deliver, but I'm also thinking about who am I delivering it to and how might they, what do they need to hear? What are the words and what do I anticipate their response to be? And, and, that can, and that will help me understand how I want to start the conversation. If I want to be folksy, if I need to bring some stats into the conversation, if I need to start with a buffer, a buffer such as, I need you to hear me out. I'm going to say some things that might be a little shocking or jarring, but let's just get through the end. We can agree to disagree, but let's just, let's talk this one through as much as we can. There's different ways in which you can approach a conversation where you're anticipating how that other person may respond. So therefore you can get the most out of it. And a lot of that is preparing for uncomfortable conversations, right? Going back to thinking about our allies, I, they too need to think about how do they address uncomfortable conversations today. And I, I use that technique that we have suggested for our allies. I use that in many of my conversations that I have in teams and behind closed doors. Well, I think there you are being a designer again. You're thinking about the intention that you like to communicate. You're thinking about and having empathy for your listener. And you're thinking about a journey to get to that outcome that you like to have in your communication. And so, so you know, kudos to you for being able to articulate that because I think that's, that's really important. And honestly, I don't see enough of that. And I, I, I honestly am, a, I'm both encouraged to, to know and to, and to see you practicing that so successfully, but it's also, I, I've got to admit, it's also a little frustrating that you have to do it that way because I, I, I go back to the point I wonder how much self-censoring you have to do that others don't, who don't have oh, yeah. your same skin tone. You see what I mean? Oh, definitely. Definitely. It, it's, it's draining, right? It's draining. I could say I probably, there is editing and facial expressions that have to be monitored so you don't come across as being the angry black woman. I started using the phrase, if you see me getting excited, it's my passion. I started borrowing that phrase from a former CEO of Bloomingdale's because, because I knew that the way I was delivering certain messages could be attacking to people. And I also understood that if it was someone else delivering the message, meaning even a white woman, that it would not be received the same. But my passion would be construed as angry black woman. And so 
Yeah, definitely think about that all the time. And then if you're just focusing on gender, you know, the, the when people say, you're such a pretty woman when you smile, just smile. I'm working, you know. <laughs> Are you going to say that to your colleague, your male colleague sitting next to you? I wish you would smile more. I don't think so. <laughs> I've heard that plenty of times with regards to women, but not men, for sure. Yeah. So it's, you know, it's gender. It's it's also, it's race as well. So playing multiple cards at, at different times. And, and then I would say the specific to IBM is, you know, being new and this being new, me being new in this industry um, and understanding and learning new cultures, if you will, within a different industry, a different type of organization. It's a lot to manage. It is a lot to manage. And, you know, I, I hope that through our works together, Joel, that the work we're doing can help mitigate this tax that we're talking about. Just like we, you know, go pay sales tax for every dollar spent, we, we send off a tax to, to whomever. For every day worked, there's a tax on certain folks that others don't have to pay. And that's a, an example of both inequality and inequity, I would say, because not only are multiple groups not sort of experiencing the same work world at the same time, they might be occupying the same time and space, but it feels like we're occupying different places of psychological safety. And and so that's the work that we're doing. And so, you know, I'm really proud of our work and, and I'll just sort of reference a couple of things here for folks to take a look at if, if they have a chance to. Right now, when what this does is allows me to give you some shine and some spotlight as well, Ms. Joel, that if you happen to be listening to this podcast uh, sort of in the spring of 2021, you can go to IBM.com right now and see Ms. Joelle Williams representing the Racial Equity and Design Initiative right there on IBM's homepage. And either click through there, or if it's not some somewhere around when we're, this recording is, happens to be happening, if you'll just go to www.ibm.com design, the Racial Equity and Design work will always be featured on, on the design page within IBM.com. And so this is a permanent home for this work. And uh, two pieces that are we feel are absolutely important are our call to action, which talks through almost like a manifesto, but more specifically, what are the values that inform racial equity and design at IBM that, I th- that we think are important for us to consider right now? and more important to adopt inside and outside the company. And then secondly, the field guide is an important piece that a lot of people are getting a lot of value out of right now. The official name is Advancing Racial Equity in Design, a field guide for managers and leaders. And in it, we highlight the fact that it's important to do the thing, Joel, that you have had to learn over a career. This idea of communication, this idea of safety, creating your own space to communicate a message. We've boiled down lessons learned through research, contextual inquiry, and academic research to develop this field guide for managers and leaders so that we can help share the load and share the burden. It's not just up to the person who feels a certain way 
to censor, curtail, or code switch, if you will. Rather, it's our shared belief that it's up to everyone who creates the reality in which we live to participate in these enlightened conversations. And, and hopefully the world, and this is all open to the public, and, and really we, we would love for folks to take take advantage. And, and Joel, I want to thank you for your work on those pieces. I know you've had a, a hand in all of our work as well. Would you agree that those are a couple of places for people to get started? Absolutely, because embedded in there, we share resources where they can dig deeper on certain topics. So it's it's a great place to get started. And I would just like to thank you, Nigel, for inviting me to be a part of this body of work, because that's how I got to, to the group, right? It started with, with you and me talking, you sharing me what was sharing with me what was going on. So it's just been a huge, huge humbling time for me to be a part of everyone's talent that's contributed and given so much to to that work that now can be shared externally. Of course, of course. Glad to 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 be arm in arm with you, Joel. Joel, let me ask you about this this next topic. As as we've been talking over the last few minutes about how it can be exhausting and how there's this constant tax maybe upon some of us more than others. I want to flip that idea on its ear a little bit because I have a hunch you've been able to master the converse of that. And what I mean is, how do you replenish? If you've had a tough day, a tough week, a tough year, maybe even, but just what are your go-to things that allow you to replenish your reservoir of energy and passion so that you can show up again and be authentic the very next day? How do you replenish, Joelle? I have a few key people that I go to when I need to vent for five minutes <laughs> on a regular basis. I, I try a lot of different aspects recently. I've been really trying to set up specific times that I'm, I'm cutting off my work day. For a little while, I was cutting off my work day and then going outside and walking around the block as if I was like coming home from work. I've done that sometimes. I am an avid Pilates participant. So I do Pilates about three to five times a week. That helps me physically and mentally. I've been listening to several books on Audible, both fiction and nonfiction. I am a firm believer in changing your getting a reset by having a five minute dance party. So <laughs> I'll turn on some house music and have a five minute dance party and dance it out. I'll go to the other extreme and have a five minute meditation session if I just need to quiet things down for a while. So I, I'd say I have a few levers that I pull out from time to time based according to if I have an evening or if I have 15 minutes in between a meeting, whatever is going on. I like it a lot. I don't know if anybody else uh, wants to see this, but certainly the five minute dance party, we got to figure out. <laughs> final, final idea here. Final question. We, we've covered a lot of ground in your life, Joelle, and we certainly appreciate you sharing the, the life story and the story arc. What would you say to the younger Joelle back in central New York, who is looking out at the world, seeing her parents doing what, what they're doing, and still, you know, probably asking yourself, what's, what's next for me? What am I going to do for myself? Where's my mark going to be made in the world? What 
advice would you give to that younger version of yourself? Slow down. Be comfortable with not knowing the answer. That it's okay to say, I don't know. I I think being authentic. I think I spent too much time trying to fit into other people's expectations. So being authentic and being all right with just being yourself. Thank you for that. That's advice for a young Nigel as well <laughs> at this point. And, and it makes, uh, it draws a really great end cap on this conversation because listen, if you, th- those two concepts that you just shared, comfort and authenticity, they actually connect to each other in interesting ways, right? Because it's hard to be authentic if you're not comfortable. And it's very easy to see when someone's not being authentic because there's a ton of discomfort in how they might present themselves. And so I, uh, certainly we have a lot to learn on that theme from you, Joelle. And I, I, you know, if I could just sort of add an idea to that from what I've heard from you today is this idea of courage and having the courage to be someone to travel cross country or at least you know, New York to Tennessee for university to, you know, to take on graduate studies, to take on, you know, retail management in, in, a, in a high stakes sort of environment of New York, to move to Texas, to go into design, go into offering management, change careers. That takes a ton of courage. And to continually bring authenticity and seek comfort in oneself while also showing courage really makes me think back to your, the very first idea of the hybrid approach that you bring to your life. So I've learned quite a bit today, Joelle. I thank you from from the bottom of my heart for this conversation. Very meaningful to me. I'm going to take these lessons almost for myself uh, personally, and I'm glad we were able to share that as well in this moment. Joelle, thank you so much for this conversation. Thanks for having me, Nigel. It's been fun. Thank you for listening to It's About Time. I'd like to thank Alicia Moore, our producer, and David Avila, our audio engineer. And thanks to the entire Racial Equity and Design Workstream here at IBM for making this possible. Everyone, be safe and be well.